0: if you could go back in time and give yourself one sage piece of advice what would it be i'm sam east and this is lessons to my younger self the podcast would you consider yourself to be a resilient person yeah there's a lot to unpack with that question the words trauma and resilience sometimes get thrown around, but actually having the tools to understand your own trauma and build resilience, it can be life-changing. The problem is not everyone has the access to the tools or the information. Enter Dr. Christy Gibson. She's a family doctor based out of Calgary, Alberta, who focuses on equity work, medical education and global health. And she's a trauma and resilience specialist. But you might know her as the TikTok trauma dog, where she presents herself as a free resource to you to help better understand, cope and heal through trauma while building up resilience. She's not gatekeeping the information, which is amazing since there's a real appetite for the content that she puts out. On a personal level, I've been navigating my own childhood trauma in particular, regular therapy, mindfulness practices, even taking courses to become a meditation teacher. And I know it's a privilege to have access to those resources. So if you have a desire to put the work in to start healing, Christie's work is right up your alley. She talks about her new book, The Modern Trauma Toolkit, how to actually rewire your nervous system and how anyone, regardless of background, social class, access to resources, and even the type of trauma you've experienced can begin to heal. This is one of my favorite conversations that I've ever had. You might even want to get a pen and paper out because we are about to learn. How was your curiosity peaked in this specific line of understanding trauma and building resilience i read that it kind
1: of happened while you were working in nepal i just happened to be there in 2015 when the earthquakes hit and i think that was what started to get me really curious around ptsd and trauma because i had a lot of physical symptoms following the earthquakes for a number of months i mean i wouldn't say they're completely gone Um, but they're better. (laughs) And so that just got me really curious around what what my physical body was experiencing. And when I started to explore that, it just opened up this whole doorway towards an understanding that so much of the physical and mental ill health I was seeing in community related to trauma and the complex trauma of childhood and the societal and structural traumas that were being placed on these communities whose needs weren't met they were often experiencing you know the the trauma of being poor the trauma of being racialized and i didn't have the language for that until i started doing a much deeper dive in 2015 um and i think i had been intuitively doing some of this work prior to that but it was so much more intentional and that's when i started to recognize if i could help people with trauma it was helping everything their their mental and physical well-being was so intertwined with the trauma and i don't think i understood because we certainly didn't le- learn this in medical school but you can cure trauma and that just made me so hopeful in a way that i hadn't really been for most of my career
0: something that's so interesting about trauma is you know most of us go through it in some capacity but it can feel so alienating. And I'm talking mostly from personal experience and anecdotally from other people, but it's like no one can understand the exact experience we've had. Based off the work that you've done, what do you sense as a common theme or, or a pattern with the trauma that we may face? And I asked this in hopes that it makes someone listening feel less alone in what they might be experiencing.
1: Well, I think now we have an understanding that there are collective traumas that we are facing together. So the pandemic mm-hmm. is probably the most overt one that we are talking about on a daily basis. But that, to me, is a collective trauma. And I know some of the experts, like even Bessel van der has said it isn't. But I, I disagree. When we look at what trauma is, it's not the experience. It's the way that our body responds to the experience. And when I look around me, I see so many people who are exhibiting fight, flight, and freeze responses relating to how the pandemic environment has affected their lives. And I don't see a lot of people who aren't whose nervous systems haven't adjusted in some way. And so when I when I see protesters, I think, oh yeah, they're stuck in fight mode. And when I see people who are shutting down and not leaving their homes, I'm thinking, oh yeah, you know, you're really in freeze. So I can see these, you know, pervasive responses that I, I can relate at the level of the nervous system. Climate chaos is causing those kinds of collective traumas as well. And people are responding in those same similar patterns you'd be hard pressed to find a person who hasn't encountered a single traumatic experience. The question is whether or not their body responded in a way that we would consider a trauma based response. So trauma isn't the thing that happens. It's not having faced, you know, abuse or neglect or, Mm. you know, violence at some time or natural disasters. I mean, those are all traumatic experiences. But from a Clinician perspective: Trauma is what happens in the body after you face those experiences, and so everyone has this range of what happens in your body. Um, but I think you'd be hard pressed to find a person who's, you know, living in the world who hasn't had one of those responses at some point. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, it's interesting you bring that up because, uh, you know, I could think just off the top of my head. Let's say siblings who had one of those experiences that you detailed. One might be affected for perhaps their entire life and the other one
1: could maybe walk away unscathed by it, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the idea around trauma processing is you kind of help people learn well what does my trauma response look like so am i a person who's stuck in fight and flight or am i Mm -hmm. a person who's stuck in freeze and shutdown and Mm -hmm. you might even vary that like that might cycle throughout the day for you if you've been really impacted by trauma so learning your own nervous system responses is the first step towards learning the tools towards re-regulating yourself. And so when you say unscathed, to me, that's a person whose nervous system bounced back. And that's the definition of resilience is bouncing back after having a trauma. And what I work a lot with and what I'm excited about is the concept of post-traumatic growth. And that's when you bounce back better. So, So you don't bounce back to the status quo, you bounce back having learned important things about yourself and relationships and the way the world works. And your thinking changes. And I think that's the thing I'm trying to embody is to to, to really be deliberate about the kinds of traumatic experiences I've been through and to try to learn and grow as much as I can from them. That's kind of the human experience in my mind. Post-traumatic growth, that's something
0: you cover in your content a lot. But for those who who don't know, is that the step after you build resilience? So you start to see changes after resilience?
1: Yeah, I've never really captured it in that quite that way. But I think you're actually right. So, so resilience is returning to status quo returning to baseline, and post traumatic growth is being able to extend beyond that in a in a a variety of ways it doesn't look the same for everybody and you can have post-traumatic growth within a community within an individual within a family system so when i think of trauma i think of systems and so the body is a human system with you know the nervous system playing a very important role in what happens but there is a family system and a community system and an ecosystem kind of this global thing and when i think of post-traumatic growth that can happen at any of those system level too so what I'm hoping is that you know we can also manage to find ways that the family system and the community system and the ecosystem could also achieve post-traumatic growth from the kinds of hits that it's taken.
0: Could you give us an example of what post-traumatic growth looks like?
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, the one that I see so much is um, when I'm working with a patient who does extraordinary work in processing and they can have so much more of um, personal insight and an, a greater understanding of you know, how the community works and how these um, scenarios play out in their community. And they just think, wow, I'm ready to give back now. And so to me, a lot of post-traumatic growth that I've seen is when they're ready to serve the community in a way that they had felt the benefit. They might learn some tools that they then share, or they might find... New purpose and meaning, new connections. So, you know, some people, I I work in very specific clinical environments at the refugee clinic and the adult addiction clinic here as a consultant for trauma. And the kinds of things that I might see in, you know, a refugee who comes out on the other side of trauma is really helping their community understand the trauma that they've been through. And helping them access resources, so that's the kind of service I might see in those communities. With adult addictions, I've had lots of people say, "Wow, these tools have been so helpful. How can I learn them? And how can I, you know, help people find ways of coping other than this addictive behavior that has served me? But now I've learned a new tool, and that's working even better. And I'd like to teach other people that. Like everyone's doing the best you can, and when you've got a." trauma response in your body, addictions are one coping strategy. And I, I don't put a lot of moral judgment on that. But mm. it certainly is more damaging to people's functioning and to their lives and their relationships. And so once they find other tools that work just as successfully, then they can incorporate those for themselves and for their communities. And that's the kind of thing that just really blows my mind as the community becomes the expert. That's something that's really important to me.
0: Yeah. I mean, that that really makes a lot of sense because with the content that you're putting out on your TikTok, you're basically providing free resources for the over 110,000 people who are
1: following your work, right? Yeah. Which is crazy. Like I've been doing this <laughs> for one year and to think that, that this many people are engaging, it, it blows mm-hmm. my mind. It's so exciting. But yeah, there's like this weight of responsibility because to me... I just think a lot of this work, there's a there's gatekeeping. And a lot of the gatekeeping is financial. So when I think about the the places where I work, I'm really deliberate because I'm a physician. I can be paid by Alberta Health Services to do the work that I do. Whereas if you were to find a therapist who did these tools privately, you'd be paying $150, 200 dollars an hour for that. And the places where I work, they could never afford it. So the reason I trained in trauma and I kind of see myself as a psychotherapist as much as I do a GP at this point is because the people that oftentimes need it the most can't afford it. So one of the reasons I put the content I do on TikTok, I I mean, I'm quite careful to say this isn't medical advice and this isn't treatment, but why not explore some of these ideas? And because so much of what I do is body-based, what i'm trying to help people understand is if you learn your nervous system so that you have some agency around knowing what your nervous system is doing so is it in fight and flight is it in freeze and shutdown and then if you can learn some tools and you can learn when you're returning to that we call it the window of tolerance in something called polyvagal theory they call it ventral vagal system but it all basically means you're in a calm and relaxed state you can still connect and interact with the world, and that doesn't send you down that trauma spiral. And my goal is to help people understand, well, what does my body feel like in those states? And if I'm practicing something that I've you know, offered on TikTok, do I feel better? Do I feel worse? How do I feel? And so sometimes people will say, oh, I didn't like that. And I said, that's great information. That's really important for you to know that. So when you practice these tools and it feels worse, then you know the kinds of things that do and don't work for your nervous system and any information is good information. I'm so curious
0: about this nervous system reboot that you talk a lot about in your content. And I think that is one of the first videos I saw of yours that stopped me dead in my tracks. It's such a, (laughs) it's such a cool concept that people have access to regardless of resources. And it's interesting because, you know, I've been in Such a state of of survival mode. I talk about this a lot with my therapist, where like you mentioned, you're either in fight, flight, or freeze. For me, my go to response is freeze. That's a pattern from my childhood that's ingrained, so it's my default response in a lot of situations. But for two plus years, Mm. we've been in survival mode, and I was talking about this with my therapist, and she said, "Of course, your nervous system." is in overdrive but your nervous system doesn't
1: care about the way that you feel (laughs) i i think it's the actual opposite do you i think your nervous system cares a lot and your nervous system every single thing that it does is trying to keep you safe So I give it a lot of credit and I give it a lot of gratitude, even when it's acting like a monkey and you're like, oh my gosh, like, could you get me out of bed at this point? Like, it's a bit much. The whole goal of your nervous system is to keep the organism safe. And so even Mm -hmm. though these responses are frustrating and they're not always functional, Mm -hmm. when you really think back kind of evolutionary where they came from, the whole point of them was safety. And so mm. I think we do kind of get mad at our bodies and say like, "Oh, what are you doing to me? This is awful." <laughs> but it's awful because it's trying to keep you safe. So if you're in freeze, it's like, "Oh, hey, just just hibernate a little bit. Maybe this will pass."
0: <laughs>
1: yeah. But you know, you say that
0: there's a reboot that is possible. So what what does the nervous system reboot look like and is that something that anybody can access?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm really quite amazed with how Amenable to shifting the nervous system can be now that I understand mm. the tools. Like, I didn't learn this stuff in medical school. And frankly, like, I graduated 20 years ago. I, I graduated from Toronto, actually. Back in those days, a lot of the studies that have come out to now just weren't known. So we didn't know about something called epigenetics, which means how trauma can actually be handed down through the generations. And so we mm. could. Kind of recognized there was intergenerational trauma, but we didn't understand there was even a biologic process behind it, not just parenting and that kind of thing. So this kind of stuff didn't come out until after I'd graduated. Even there's a really important study about something called ACEs or adverse childhood experiences. And that study literally was conducted the year that I graduated medicine and it hasn't nearly infiltrated medical education the way it should. So You know a lot of us train and we kind of have this biological pharmacological uh understanding of illness but so much of it takes place in the nervous system like if you think about there's two nervous systems one is that fight and flight and that's called sympathetic so your sympathetic nervous system mobilizes your body so you need it like for you to just go to the gym and work out or cook a meal You need your sympathetic system because it's the thing that moves you. So everyone kind of says, oh, your sympathetic system's in overdrive. Well, you need it. You just don't need so much of it. So when it's in fight or flight Mm -hmm. is when you're tense all the time and your body feels restless and your mind is racing. And then you're in sympathetic overdrive. If that gets totally overwhelmed is when the freeze response kicks in. And that's, again, your body saying, wow, this is way too much for you, poor little organism. Like, let's just chill for a while. And then it slows you right down. And that's Mm -hmm. when your body feels floppy and, like, stuck, and it just doesn't want to do anything. And that's the organism kind of in a shutdown. So the parasympathetic nervous system is the rest and digest one. But when it goes into overdrive, It shuts everything down. And that's when the freeze Mm -hmm. kicks in. And sometimes people kind of seek out those kinds of experiences where they can activate or, you know, really go into shutdown because that's what their nervous system is saying. Oh, I think this would feel better. And the goal is to try to get into the rest and digest system more often where you do feel like you can comfortably move your body and sympathetic, but not outside of that window of comfort. And then you can get into parasympathetic, but again, not in that shutdown mode, but just stillness. So things like stillness, play, intimacy, those all use the parasympathetic system, but when it's in overdrive is when it's in freeze. So what every nervous system reboot looks like is just spending more and more time in that window where everything is comfortable. And so when you can use your sympathetic system and move around and stay in a comfortable body, and when you can be restful in the parasympathetic system and stay in a comfortable and connected body. And so the whole goal is to learn, well, what does that feel like for me? And what kinds of things can I bring into my life that help me get there more often? And that's really what the reboot looks like. It's not like, you know, you reboot the computer and you just have a little switch behind your ear and you're like... (laughs) toggle the on off switch. That would be awesome. Um, It's more like a learning. It's kind of a journey where you're getting to know your nervous system and the more things that happen and the more things you experience, the more knowledge you have. Everyone's body is different. Everyone's nervous system is different. Everyone responds differently to things. So it's really Mm -hmm. a personal journey of figuring it out. And a big
0: part of that must be that you have to be willing to put in the work to figure it out because there is no one size fits all.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And access is a huge issue. Like a Mm -hmm. a lot of my patients at their refugee clinic, they're working like two, three jobs, they got five kids at home, like, how are they going to take the time to, to make that happen? So there's financial access, there's time access, there's cultural access, like some of the things that are traditional therapy, like talk therapy that was created by white bodies for white bodies and it doesn't always like hit mm. the mark culturally like a lot of my patients who are newcomers they present with somatic complaints so they'll show up with like belly pain or a headache and when i kind of like scrape under the surface i can find that that's actually a traumatic response and that's how they express it and a lot mm. of times when i do body based work with them it's a much easier doorway for them to walk through rather than for them to share in the same way that would be expected for other people. So the more tools that a person has in their toolkit, and I guess that's where my privilege comes in is I just spent like six years and about 200 grand studying all the things. And that's why I'm really eager to share my knowledge on TikTok is because I just like, I don't know if you can see, but I have like 300 books behind me. And <laughs> I've taken so many courses. We call it like the alphabet soup of just learning every single tool that could help for trauma. And mm-hmm. I've studied a lot of things. And the more tools that you can share with people, the more that they're going to find the right ones that return them to that window where they feel comfortable and calm.
0: I, I want to touch on um, specifically childhood trauma, which you, you've you've talked about a little bit here. Yeah. I mean, the whole theme of the podcast is lessons to my younger self. And this area is specifically very complex, very delicate. I- I'm 32 years old. Only in the last like three years of my life have I embraced the fact that trauma I experienced as a young person is something that has shaped a lot of who I am today. Not define me, but it's certainly played a role in who I am. And More than just recognizing it, like you've you've talked about, I acknowledge that I have a responsibility. I owe it to myself to work through this. Mm -hmm. So what might you say to someone who is struggling potentially to process and and heal through their own childhood trauma?
1: I think the first thing is hope. Uh, You know, that this is something that you can come out on the other side from. So when this ACEs study showed up in the late 90s, the heartbreaking thing about it is that for every you know point you have, so the, the, there's a point system from this study, it was kind of a public health survey and they asked all these questions around abuse and neglect and different things that can happen in the family system. They left a lot out. So I don't personally use it as a screening tool, but as a public health survey, it was very helpful. What they found is that there was this exponential increase for every single tough thing that you went through as a kid. There's an exponential increase in mental and physical illness later in life. And I think once you start to know, oh gosh, my ACE score is six, like this is going to shorten my life by 10 years. Well, no, if you're on the journey towards learning your nervous system, learning that fight and flight center in your brain and Mm -hmm. um, the amygdalas, the fight and flight center, they have kind of a reflex response. So if you can get in there before the reflex kicks in and learn these tools you can shift the way the nervous system shows up. So I think a lot of people feel like they're kind of destined to this particular way that the journey will play out once they learn the ACE score and what it means. And that's absolutely not the case. I've seen all kinds of people really thrive. And even with mental illness, you can thrive. So I think a lot of people feel like, you know, mental illness means you're not Um, going to be able to flourish and I think that's absolutely not true so even though childhood trauma might set the organism up in a way that could look like anxiety when you're caught in sympathetic or ADHD and it might look like depression and just not caring not motivated when you're stuck in freeze that's really not it it's it's your body's way of protecting you it's trying to keep the organism safe and when you learn other tools that can reassure hey right here right now i am safe and when your nervous system starts to learn and believe that message different tools show up everything can change and so i've seen people heal from the most devastating traumas it's like honestly one of the greatest honors and like gifts of my career is to be able to be with people on that journey some trauma therapies almost feel like magic there's one thing that i do i'm sure you've heard of emdr it's when they move your eyes with their hand kind of back and forth and they have you go through childhood issues there's a much accelerated version of that called accelerated resolution therapy and it's almost always single session sometimes two or three but a lot of the ones i've done even for childhood trauma is single session and you process the whole set of experiences you've had according to a theme Mm -hmm. and you come out on the other side of that hour and a half session, walking out of there a totally different person. So, so hope (laughs) I think is, is really the big message and gratitude. Like rather than being angry with your body and saying like, this is so frustrating or annoying or sabotaging, just be more grateful that This is my body trying to protect itself and part of my job is reassuring it that i don't need this level of protection anymore and these messages that i got during my childhood telling me that the world isn't safe and i can't trust people um i can change that pattern of messaging so i could start to believe that sometimes the world is safe and i can trust my intuition more and more when i learn to really connect to it so that i can keep myself safe and i can trust that intuition and judge people um, as to whether or not they are safe in my life. So all of that journey is totally possible.
0: I've heard you reference as well the the inner child in your work. What does a, a relationship with your inner child look like?
1: I don't even really think of it as one kid. I think there's a bunch of kids in there. So there's there's <laughs> no, one cool. really, yeah, there's like the family. So there's yeah. so this really cool therapy that I'm not certified in, but I've taken a number of courses in it called internal family systems. And it's basically the idea that there's certain stages of your life where something traumatic happened and that traumatic response kicked in. And that child part that had to deal with this difficult thing kind of frozen time and it's still a part of us. So so a lot of the work in healing trauma is reassuring these he calls them exiles, but it's these child parts in us that just have really different opinions than our adult integrated self and they they mm. they they might, you know, kind of run the show when they're really triggered and they might have responses that seem unexpected or childlike in their behavior because they're just telling us, "Hey, we don't feel safe." <laughs> we're going to we're going to act up a little bit here cuz this isn't going down the way we like. And so, having a lot of compassion towards those child parts and you know, a lot of people who have childhood trauma, they they feel shame. And I think the more that we can shift the shame towards self-compassion and say, "Hey, of course these child parts are a little bit stuck. They they got hurt." And now that you as an adult can learn to protect them and to help them feel safer, and to help them understand what life looks like now, the more that you can do that integration work and just feel a lot of compassion towards those little ones.
0: Resilience is a huge part of, of what you do. And I'm I'm really curious to hear what you think of this. And you might have seen it as well. There was a meme going around a little while ago, and it said, I dream of never being called resilient again in my life I'm exhausted by strength. I want support. I want softness. I want ease. I want to be amongst kin, not patted on the back for how well I take a hit or for how many. And I saw so many people sharing this sentiment. And I wonder, what do you think that's suggesting? Because it was the first time I saw resilience being put down like it was a bad thing.
1: Yeah. I've seen it being put down in two contexts. That one I can definitely appreciate because it's exhausting. Mm-hmm. Like the the getting back to baseline after you've taken a hit. I mean, it's kind of like you feel like you're a boxer in the ring
0: and yeah. someone's
1: slugging at you and you're just like, oh man, could I just have a boring life for a little while? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So even though it's pretty awesome to achieve post-traumatic growth on the other side of it and say, wow, look at how much I've evolved and all these lessons I've learned and, um, Mm -hmm. how much more, you know, I'm capable of on this side of things, it's tiring. So I think people asking for ease and softness is just saying, well, Hey world, (laughs) I'm kind of done taking the blows for a while. Mm -hmm. Um, could things just be easy? I mean, sometimes when I'm working with a person and they say, Oh, and then this happened and then this happened, I'm thinking, how can one human go through so many things that are, you know, just seems impossible. And just coming out at all on the other end of it, having survived is incredible. And then mm-hmm. the thinking of trying to be functional in kind of capitalistic society, which says you have to have a job that looks like this, and no matter what your neurodivergence, um, it's it's really hard to get there when you've been taking blow after blow after blow, and it's all you can do is kind of crawl with your you know, bloodied face that was a really gross analogy. Sorry. Um, <laughs> very graphic. yeah, very graphic. Um, let's, let's switch to a different one. It's, it's just a little bit gross. One of my favorite analogies around post-traumatic growth is the butterfly. So, so mm-hmm. when you think about the butterfly, um, there's this little caterpillar kind of crawling around doing his thing. And he undergoes a metamorphosis where he makes his little cocoon and he shelters up and he kind of, um, creates its little cave for transformation. And then the poor little caterpillar dissolves itself in acid, <laughs> so it's like really deeply <laughs> uncomfortable to transform. And most yes. people don't want to do it. Like most people, no. be like, I don't think like I want to do the work because that's hard. But transformation mm. is hard. So to come out on the other side of resilience and post traumatic growth, you've got to do the work. Being in the crucible, being you know in the um, in this cocoon until you can emerge as this butterfly that's transformed and has all this Mm. growth and evolution and beauty and emergence, it's hard work. And then the second thing that I think communities rightly say about resilient is, I shouldn't have to be this resilient. Like I shouldn't be facing so many structural oppressions. So there's a lot of communities that get hit hard by policy and get hit hard by intergenerational and ancestral traumas i mean specifically i'm thinking first nations but yeah. um there's there's many communities that have those kinds of themes that they face and it's not fair and they shouldn't have to be as resilient as they have had to be because of the structures imposed on them and i've heard that like i follow a lot of the indigenous creators on TikTok, and and that's a meme that was going around there is i, I shouldn't have to be resilient like there should be a time where that that the structures around me make it more easeful, and I shouldn't have to be fighting mm. this hard just for my basic rights. It kind of hits at the individual level and also at the system level that pushback against resilience. And yeah, I get it. Mm-hmm.
0: There's a, there's a lot of um, emotional heavy lifting, a lot of emotional labor. Yeah
1: and community-based labor too. You're up north and food costs like 20, 30 times what it does anywhere else right. and you may or may not have water and it's the highest rate of suicide on the planet and your community is like collectively suffering so much. So even though you might try to reach out to somebody, what are they facing too? Like there's just so many structures that make it really hard to to climb out of that cocoon and you know get that journey accomplished when you're just on in survival mode trying to get your basic needs met and this growth towards figuring out what the other side looks like it can happen really beautifully in community like there's some first nations communities that are really working on well what does it look like to bring back traditional practices and traditional ways of knowing and how can the community heal from being able to approach it in a totally different way outside of the western medicine paradigm That's something that really interests me. I think there's so many ways that community healing can happen that we've kind of forgotten because we're such an individualistic society. Like, hey, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. But what if you can't? What if you're at the bottom of a well and you just really need some other people pulling with you?
0: Grief is something that goes hand in hand with trauma and and resilience. It's an inevitable part of life that we all experience. If people still run away from it. And then to add to that, sometimes it can feel really awkward to sit with the grief or, or sit with someone else who's going through it. How does somebody embody resilience while processing grief?
1: Yeah. Such a good question, Sam. And it's, it's really, um, it's kind of multifaceted because even when you're doing trauma work based on your childhood, part mm. of you is grieving. Part of you is grieving the childhood you wish that like these young parts of you that suffered that you wish they could have had a different life. So, grief well, can also be processing your own trauma stuff. And then yeah. there's the grief that happens in your adult life when you're letting go of dreams, you know, letting go of y- your life during the pandemic and letting go of people and beings that you care about. Grief can happen for so many different ways. Mm-hmm. And I think we, we think of it as this like journey where you go through these steps and then you merge on the other side and it's done, but it's actually not. I think all these things that we grieve, like the childhood we didn't have and these places and beings that are constantly changing, grief is part of the human experiment and part of the human journey. And we will get hit by these waves when something really huge happens. Like I, I think I shared with you that I lost my dad and my grandmother within the last couple of years. And, oh, They were two really important people for me. And, um, like it, it catches me sometimes where I think like, even when I got the book deal and I was so excited and, um, obviously called my mom and sister right away, but those were people that were missing in the story that would have been so proud and would have been just a part of that celebration. So that, that grief journey hits you kind of like these waves And I think part of grief initially is just learning those tools around trauma to give yourself some life preservers, because if you're Mm -hmm. drowning in grief, Mm -hmm. that's impossible to kind of keep moving. But when you've got a bit of a life preserver and you can just keep your head above water until the waves don't seem quite so big, you can learn to swim through it again. Even with the pandemic, there's a lot of things that people are grieving. We're grieving the fact that there was a time where we felt like we were all in this together. And now there's so much polarity. I grieve even just the relationship of being a physician. And some people are really mistrustful and antagonistic and protesting us right now. And mm. I, I grieve that. that. That that was something I had always held as like, you know, people um, respect our knowledge and trust us in some ways. And I mean, obviously, there's a lot of reasons for people to mistrust um, the healthcare system. But I, I never experienced anything like what's happened in the last two years and I didn't think it was possible. So I think I'm grieving that relationship to some extent. Like I'm I'm no longer a family doctor because of how things all played out in the pandemic and I'm grieving that loss. So I think a lot of us are grieving things like the, the changes to our lives, the changes to our relationships. And that's kind of a, a microcosm of these bigger griefs that all happen. So the way I look at it is every single feeling and every single experience is, is shared by all humans. I mean, we will all grieve somebody that we care about at some time in this life. And mm-hmm. these shared experiences are something that's just kind of, there, there's a Buddhist way of approaching it that's kind of saying, well, instead of I am the embodiment of grief, I am grieving, I am sad, I am stressed. I always share there is grief, there is sadness, there is stress. And I have some and you have some, and this is kind of the human journey we're all on. And and maybe you have some more grief than me right now and I will walk alongside you while you mm-hmm. are carrying more of it. And that's where community care comes in. That's so
0: powerful though, because the words I am carry a lot of charge. Yeah. They define you. So for yeah. you to say, I am grieving, you're defined
1: by the grief. I I think there's a real gentleness to say there is grief, there is sadness. Mm -hmm. And rather than feel like you're identifying with it. I I think the one time, I guess there's kind of two times where I don't feel like people can successfully process trauma is when they they see it as their identity. Like I am a Mm. person who's been through this thing and that's all I am. And they can't see Mm -hmm. these like multifaceted ways that could you also see yourself as a person who's getting to resilience and getting to post-traumatic growth and has all these other beautiful strengths and skills and connections. And if they are identifying solely through that traumatic experience, it is hard to shift it because they would come out on the other side of it just wondering who they are and how to be in the world. And it's not to say that I haven't been on that journey with people. I certainly have, and they can come out on the other side of it, but it's, it's trickier. And then there's also people who have survivor guilt and they just feel like healing would make them feel even worse about having come through on the other side. Those are two kinds of stuckness that I have seen where it's hard to move past it if that's holding you back. And that's always the first step if I see one of those things. Speaking
0: to that sort of I am statement. I love me a good affirmation, but there's, and I know, I know a lot of people do, but you talk about something that's not as widely known, which is the affirmation. Another, another video of yours that stopped me dead in my tracks. So, why is the affirmation maybe even more effective than the affirmation? And can you explain what the difference is?
1: Some people really appreciate changing the affirmation, so it's a little more softer. So, Mm -hmm. an affirmation I will just share with. At uh, people who might not be as certain as to what we're talking about. It would say, um, I am capable, I am strong, I can get through this. Sometimes when a person tries to say affirmations, their brain just kicks back a bit and says, well, that feels like a lie, because I'm not certain about this as you are as you this claim here. Um, mm-hmm. Or it feels like, it's so aspirational that it's almost ludicrous. Like Mm. I am wildly successful. I mean, dude, I'm trying to just make my toast in the morning at this point, (laughs) you know? So so it just seems so far (laughs) from reality that, you know, you feel like you're aspiring to something that's impossible. So Mm -hmm. sometimes affirmations work great. People say, I can manifest these things by saying these affirmations until they're true. And that's great. That works for some people. What I love about affirmations is you're just saying the same same sentences, but you're just asking what if. What if I could be okay? What if I could be successful? What if I can get through this? And instead of, you know, assuring yourself that it's already happened, which mm. to some people's brains just doesn't feel true, this what if just plants a seed of possibility because I think when you've been through trauma the brain preferentially, and this is actually true of all humans, the brain preferentially pays attention to negative input. And that's a part of where those fight and flight centers in our brain kick in As they say, I'm going to pay attention to anything that feels dangerous inside or outside the body, and I'm mm-hmm. going to keep us safe by paying attention to every single possible threat. So mm-hmm. what an information does, always phrased with a positive sentence, is... It just plants a seed and says, well, what if something positive could be true? What if I am somebody who could get through this? What if what if I could be abundant or successful or happy or whatever it is that you're kind of trying to walk gently on the path towards rather mm-hmm. than trying to manifest it and leaping all the way there is what if I could just plant one foot at a time towards that journey? And w- w- the way the brain works is, when you're locked into a trauma response, it kind of constantly takes you into these paths of oftentimes shame. I'm not good enough. I don't deserve this. People don't look out for me. I'm not safe. And once you've been walking down that path for a really long time, the brain preferentially continues down those pathways. And so what the affirmations can do is just provide a different pathway to experiment with. And a lot of it is part of just knowing your nervous system. Like, does this feel possible? Does this feel self-compassionate does this feel okay for me and sometimes it's the affirmation sometimes it's the affirmation and Mm. some people even soften it beyond that like what I love about TikTok is the community gives me even more ideas and they'll say well I'm curious about the possibility that I could be safe and that's Mm. an even more gentle way of approaching it and so Mm -hmm. sometimes people need even more gentle seeds to plant and Mm. Yeah, it's, it's more like when you learn your nervous system and you learn, well, how's that hitting in me? Does that make me feel anxious? Does that make me shut down and freeze? Because sometimes the affirmations do that for people. So what I love about affirmations, and I wasn't the creator of the affirmations. I actually learned it during um, training for something called havening or delta wave therapy where you – provide um different wavelengths in the brain so rather than the stressed out gamma waves predominating the more calm delta waves show up and when i learned this technique actually the affirmations were one of the tools that they added to the havening skills it's just interesting because nobody's really published about the affirmations and so a lot of people think that i've originated it and i haven't but what i do is i just provide so much information to people that could be helpful. And the whole goal Mm -hmm. is to say, I'm gonna provide you with as many tools as I possibly can. And your goal is to learn your nervous system and just figure out, are these tools helping me stay in a calm and connected body more of the time? And for some people, the affirmations really do that. You made an announcement not too long ago. You have
0: a book coming out, spring 2023, The Modern Trauma Toolkit. So exciting. I mean, if you've gotten to this point, in our conversation, if you're listening, and you know anything about uh, Christie's content online, that's like the gateway to what we can learn more about in this book. So can you tell us a little bit more about what we can learn once we get our hands on this book?
1: When I started really pouring into the literature and the books around trauma, I felt like a lot of it wasn't fully accessible to the kinds of patients that I see. And even the kinds of conversations that I'm having on TikTok, they really want professionals like me who are privileged in a specific way to acknowledge that there's this structural trauma that's happening. So if we try to say, oh, you're facing this individual trauma, it's up to you to fix it without saying, Mm -hmm. hey, what are the systems that impose this trauma on you? And how Mm -hmm. can we also work collectively to heal those systems? So There's a couple things that I think are different about my book. One is I'm trying to make it really accessible. I'm trying to aim it at kind of the demographic that I attract in TikTok, um, Mm -hmm. but also being really deliberate around seeking out diversity. So making sure there's people who've had racialized experiences and different genders. I think it's really important to make sure that people don't read the book and say well this is only working for one particular lens that was really important mm-hmm. for me both to be accessible in terms of the way i explain things mm-hmm. and accessible in the way that you say well this this is me this is something i relate to the other thing is just really having a solution focused lens a lot of times when you read a book about trauma it might touch on some of the things that are helpful but when you're reading about you know neurofeedback or even like the accelerated resolution therapy I mentioned earlier, and you can't access that for whatever reason, it can feel really hopeless. And so my my goal with the book is to say, hey, there's so many ways that you can approach healing your nervous system responses from traumatic events. And I'm gonna provide you with lots and lots of tools throughout the book. Like literally, I think every chapter but one so far is peppered with what I'm calling practices. And they're invitations. They're just saying, "Hey, if this is something that sounds interesting to you, you might want to experiment with it, and then check in with your body. Does this feel better? Does this feel worse? Where are you at?" And so, providing many tools that that I think are you know, available in book format. There's also gonna be a website and that's probably gonna go live this spring. So it's gonna go live a year before the book and that's moderntrauma.com. And that's a place where there's gonna be lots of community conversations. So part of my goal isn't to become the next guru about trauma, my goal is to make the community the expert about trauma. And that's what I think also differentiates me is I'm I'm not trying to say, hey, only therapists have that knowledge. My goal is to try to get this knowledge in the hands of as many people and communities as possible. And then there might come some people who say, hey, we used these informations and then we did this with them and then we all continue to learn together. Or they might say, I learned this tool, but it really didn't fit for my community because of this particular You know, thing that we face. And so we did it in a different way and let's share that. And I think once community starts having these bigger conversations about what's working and not working is when we're going to really see things move. And I think the fact that we're talking more and more about trauma is really opening the door towards allowing that to happen. We have a rapid
0: fire round. We do this with every guest and- I'm going to rhyme off some words or phrases. You tell me the first thing that comes to your mind. And it doesn't have to be one word, just whatever comes to your mind. Okay. Resilience. Status quo. Your favorite affirmations.
1: I think it's around hope. What if I could be hopeful? What if I could be self-compassionate? What if I could believe that I deserved healing? Because it's so hard to do the trauma work without believing those things first. Mm. Healing. There's a difference between healing and curing. And a lot of the work that I do both in kind of palliative care um, and, you know, medical assisted death and trauma is with the understanding that great healing can take place without necessarily curing. You can't reverse time and say this trauma never happened, but incredible healing can still take place. A
0: modality that I swear by.
1: Attunement. Uh, There's a really brilliant trauma therapist in Arizona called uh Eric Gentry and I've done all of his trainings cuz he's just so bright and he says if you have like the ability to attune and see each other's kind of nervous system responses especially mm-hmm. when you're the therapist it doesn't actually matter what modality you use cuz so much of what's taking place is validation and me maintaining a safe environment for somebody. And if you can do that for yourself, like if you can do kind of self attunement, that's beautiful. But if you can be attuned with another human, that's the journey. So sometimes people don't have to do trauma processing with a therapist. They can actually learn that they can be safe in the world and that they can trust people from an attuned relationship. So I think attunement is kind of the, the thing. And finally, in this round, words to live by. Interconnection. So, this might be slightly controversial, but one of the things I think is super cool to explore in trauma spaces is psychedelics. And so, I won't get into any details about it because a lot of psychedelic research is supposed to take place in these really formal, you know, um, research environments. Um, mm-hmm. But what I've learned through the advent of psychedelic medicine is that when you start to have a really great understanding of interconnectedness of all beings and all matter that's a really large step in healing trauma which is why sometimes psychedelic work kind of takes you a leap ahead when you're when you're processing trauma both complex so like childhood stuff as well as like an incident trauma when one thing happens to you mm-hmm. sometimes that work can really have a huge advance when you do psychedelic work. And there's other ways of achieving that for sure. For me, what it does is it just gives you this sense of like the interconnectedness of all things. Mm-hmm. And once you have that understanding, your place in the schema just really falls into that place of self compassion, that place of compassion for others. And mm-hmm doesn't seem so overwhelming.
0: I feel like we need to do a whole other episode on that. But just to <laughs> clarify for people, by yeah. psychedelic work, do you mean, I I know everyone hearing that is thinking the same thing. Do you mean psychedelic drugs? Or is there another component that we're not aware of here?
1: No, I'm talking psychedelic drugs, and some right. of which are like psilocybin mushrooms. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of work being done in the space of that intersection between trauma and psychedelic drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, The only one legal in Canada right now is ketamine, but there's a huge push towards um, psilocybin because the research trials are amazing. They're also really good for MDMA. So I hope that this government is gonna allow us to use these drugs. Like If you look at drugs of abuse in society, and society and individual harms mm-hmm. these have almost nothing like especially compared to like alcohol or cigarettes mm-hmm, <laughs> they have mm-hmm. very little harm attached to them but we've been gatekeeping mm-hmm. the research around it and i think mm. it is providing a whole new avenue of hope for some people so i don't recommend going out and doing shrooms and saying hey i'm going to work on my trauma tonight <laughs> i i've been training to be like a psychedelic journey guide yeah. and i really right. think that the most yeah. important key to this stuff is called set and setting so like being with that attuned person in a setting that feels calm and connected and comfortable so mm-hmm. there's clinics opening up everywhere and mm-hmm. just making sure that you stay safe in that environment but yeah. i've seen incredible work so i think the trauma landscape once these things become legal is going to open up a lot in the next 10 years so there's incredible tools but there's more coming we're just learning what's available and what the human body already has capacity to do. Okay. Last thing here. We we wrap every episode like this. With all
0: your experiences uh, and your work that you've done in trauma and resilience, if you could go back and talk to younger Christy, mm-hmm. and that could be Christy as a child, Christy as a teen, Christy from last week, it doesn't matter. What words would you pass on to that younger version of yourself?
1: That is such a good question. I think- The journey that like I'm constantly trying to figure out is that self-compassion, like even when you mess up, even when you hurt somebody, even when you don't have like a lot of self-esteem, you are just doing the best you can in any given moment and you're kind of a product of all your past experiences and go easy, you know? I, I'm a bit of a perfectionist like I mean obviously I'm sharing about how hard I've been trying to learn all the things and share all the things and doing a doctorate and writing a book on top of clinical work like I I work really hard and I think part of what I need to like learn is just like it's also okay to go easy I'd probably just say hey little one it's gonna be fun and amazing and like man you've like when one of the things we do when we do this child parts work is we go back to them and say hey you've learned how to keep yourself safe and you've been on all these like great adventures and you've done these neat things in your life and could have you ever imagined it at that age mm-hmm. so kind of like that starry-eyed like desire to like do stuff hey like turned out pretty good <laughs> oh my brain is still buzzing from that conversation thank
0: you dr christy gibson If you want to learn more about her book, The Modern Trauma Toolkit, check out moderntrauma.com. And like we referenced, she's got a ton of free resources on her socials at tiktoktraumadoc. Next episode, we're talking to medium Tracy Stella. That's next week on the Lessons to My Younger Self podcast. I'm Sam East. Thank you for listening.